welcome to the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. Back to the show, everyone. We are on week number, I don't even know, of the quarantine series of this podcast. Uh, we've been doing pretty good about getting you a new episode every two weeks during this time because, I mean, really, what, what else do we have to be doing? So this week, we are going to be diving a little bit more in depth into a topic that's come up a few times throughout our various episodes, that being the Eucharist our different traditions, views on the Eucharist, how it relates to the whole transubstantiation debate, which uh, if you don't know what that word means, stick around, we will talk about it. And just generally the Eucharist as a sacrament, as a means um, by which God's grace is given to us through the medium of the bread and wine. So look forward to a good discussion about that. Um, Just a quick note, excuse some of the audio quality that is sort of inherent in a Zoom recording. So if you hear someone's voice stretch or some audio dropouts did the best we could to edit them and it's still pretty good but if you hear some of that just excuse the platform we are doing the best we can with what we have also just want to acknowledge that uh, at the beginning you'll hear some various farm animals in the background father adam joins us from his shed where you can hear some goats and some roosters and all kinds of other various uh farm livestock creatures in the background so you know, you could edit them out, but at the same time, you know, why would, why would you? Honestly, with, with, with who we are and, and the atmosphere we like to keep, why would you? So uh, let's head back to the virtual table where we will talk about the Eucharist on this episode of Three Priests Walking a Bar. All right, all right. It's our third installment of the Zoom series of Three Priests Walking a Bar. We might uh, this might actually get to be the majority of our episodes by the time this by the time this whole thing is over. <laughs> People are going to get used to this quality, and then we'll all get back around the table and be like, "Whoa, I didn't know they actually sounded like that." <laughs> uh, so, what what day is it right now? It's it's May twenty sixth. Um, yes. At the time of this recording. Um. We are right in the thick of quarantine. Um, there's uh, rumors and whisperings of the beginnings of reopenings um, in our state, and we, we're not quite sure how long that's going to take. The governor just uh, just issued the mandated mask order starting on Friday for, for Virginia. So we're, I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign as to far, like how close we are to reopening, but uh, we know we just want people to be safe. So... He gave us the mandated mask order and then appeared on the beach with no mask. <laughs> well, it's, it's not not until Friday. Oh, okay, okay. Um, he gets the pass. All right, so we're back with uh, with all the friendly faces. If you're watching this on video, um, some of our faces are a little bit stiller than others because, and our backgrounds are a little bit more professional considering the straw that's in the back of <laughs> Father Adam's video. <laughs> Father Adam is sitting on his tractor underneath the hayloft in his barn. We've we've <laughs> we've gone from inside your house to you, then you were kicked out to the chapel that you're building, and now you're in the barn. I'm in the barn. It's cozy in here. I'm quiet as soon as you know the goats shut up. So how have you guys been holding up? 
just a, a little bit of catch up. Busy, busy. Keeping very busy. Very busy indeed. Uh, both at home and at, uh, at church. Uh, and I don't equate any negativity to that. I think that's probably a good thing. Nick, are you working at all? Uh, oh, no, of course. Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it's something I think we none of us expected, but but we've all experienced, which is that the, there's almost a, a kind of a greater busyness in this uh, working from home and and meeting people via Zoom and and uh, making all sorts of phone calls and uh, yeah and 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 it's uh, kind of a different type of exhausting too. It's uh, it's an interesting time. Well. Before we get into our our topic, I mean, we must we must go around the table, the virtual table, and uh, and talk about our libations. This is the virtual kids table. Yes, the virtual kids table. Libations at the virtual kids table is a little odd, but that's the name of our next album. Libations <laughs> at the virtual kids table. Um. All right, so. I think we? baby, sweet baby Nick should tell us what he's drinking since for the first time in ages upon ages on men, he's got a beer in his hand. I do. I finally, I finally picked something up. So this is the, this is the Uberlin. It's mm. a, it's a Berliner Weiss from Strangeways Brewing here in, um, here in Richmond. I like, I like a good sour. And when I was first, when I was first getting into drinks, um, and like trying to find a beer that I would enjoy because I was really picky. There's the rooster. There's um, you to miss the rooster pitching in. Um, I, the guy was pointing me to a bunch of different sours. So like Gosa's and Berliner Weiss was one of the things he recommended and finally got around to trying some and it's really good. I'm, I'm, it's, not, it's nice and uh, it, it's light and it's got a, a nice crisp, refreshing flavor to it. So I quite enjoy it. I like the Weiss beers. Those are right at the top of my list. What do you have, Father Adam? Oh, let me well, guess. I am a creature of habit, and I would like to continue to maintain my solidarity with that much maligned Corona beer company. So I am drinking a quart of Corona Familiar in a brown bottle, not the Corona Extra, because that smells like skunk. Tastes like skunk, probably. Is this the one that um, that you still get at the gas station? I get at the gas station or at at uh, at the tiendas where you know there's they they sell good Mexican beers, um, but we only have one or so in Ashland. So I, I usually get this from Wawa. Really? That's <laughs> kind of always an upscale got a few. gas station, so I can get mine. Right. <laughs> there's a place where I wouldn't mind trying the sushi. <laughs> I don't think they make sushi there, sadly. Otherwise, I would be eating that a lot more often. Do you know? Kroger makes good sushi. They do. Shout out. They have great sushi, and I recommend it. Their New York roll is really good. New York crunch roll. All of it's good. But I like the stuff that has the most the most broth in it. I like it good, good and raw. Pastor Lou, what do you what do you have? Well, I'm I'm uh, being very friendly today. It says. Honey. <laughs> this is actually old uh, for those at home. That was on the can. Hi, neighbor. It's it is my Narragansett Lager. I tried that the other day. Yes, and it was surprisingly good, wasn't it? I I will have it again. Yeah, for the for the price, it's a lower cost beer, but it's a reminds me of home, New England. It's a New England beer out of, of course, Narragansett originally, and um, it is it 
you know, this season is a season for baseball, which of course we're not playing, but they were the first beer to sponsor a baseball team. They originally sponsored the Boston Braves until they defected to another city. And then the Boston Red Sox, they're big supporters of the Red Sox. And so that's my uh, honor to those, to them. And on the, on the can, it says made on honor, sold on merit. But I do want to say that uh, this, this is not a saving beer. It is just a, a, a beer. I've been noticing that you've, you've had a, a lot of interesting, interesting beers to try. Cause I follow you on, on untapped. Yes. And it's like every day you've got a new one. So I don't know where well, you're getting your, uh, your collection. Yeah, um, you know, Untapped. I've been doing Untapped for several years now. So if anyone out there wants to follow along or interact there, feel free. We um, Father Nick's on there now. Father, tell Adam, me about this. What is it again? It's, it's social media for beer, where you can share what you've been drinking and read about the beers and hear see what other people have rated the beers and and uh, so I've been doing it for a while with and some friends and family. Not a huge amount of folks I'm connected with, but particularly these days I'm, I'm having, you know, like one beer a day or so. And, and just, I try to mix it up. Is it an app? Yep. Yeah. It's an app. Untapped is the name of the app. And it's cool. a, it's a good app. It can help you find a good beer. If you ever wander in the store and you need to look something up, it's a good way to, to know what's uh, what is, what other people like. And, um, so like anyway, Father Adam needs another social media outlet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Father Nick, what do you have up there? Beer. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, I was just saying it's not a bad beer. I recommend it. It's a, it's an old school beer, though. It actually went out of business for a while. Is that the one you were drinking last time, Father Lou? No, um, this I, I did write you about it, I think, because I thought... Oh, you yeah. And it, and it was originally 1890. And then in, in like 1990s, 2000, it kind of died out, got bought out. And they didn't keep... I, people say they didn't make it as well. And then recaptured the old school beer that it was and so right now it seems to be doing okay it looks like father nick is drinking sprite but but i do yeah i do have my my sam pellegrino oh ooh, <laughs> uh, we're not talking about baptism today we're talking about eucharist <laughs> He's going to turn that into wine later, Father Adam. Uh, you know, I've never, I've never done a, a, a carbonated water baptism. <laughs> if Ooh. he turns it into wine, it won't be uh, champagne because it wasn't from the champagne region of France. Exactly, it yeah. just be sparkling salvation. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can't remember. I might have had this beer uh, the last time we got together. I, I honestly don't don't remember um and that shows that i have not listened to uh to our last you had a stout the last time okay so th yes this, stout. this is uh the uh oma gang uh three philosophers <laughs> that's a big <laughs> bottle not not three priests but three philosophers yeah i'm finishing it up but i this has not been all in one sitting that i've been drinking sure. shared that on our facebook group yeah uh, and it says here, uh, to ponder the profound, rich and complex, this tour de force is a blend of quadruple ale and authentic Belgian Creek 
its malty depth and gentle sweetness enhanced by lively carbonation and a touch of cherry. The perfect beer for leisurely sipping and quiet contemplation. Serve at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Enhanced also by an enormous price tag. <laughs> that's also, and for those who don't know, that's also um, Father Nick's bio on his Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think well, we all got Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all got something handy and something, something fairly decent. Like one could make an argument about that Corona, but I won't. <laughs> so our topic today is going to be one that uh, has sort of come up in different um, different levels in our conversations in the past. Um, we're going to talk about um, what Father Adam has termed Father Nick's anti-communion. <laughs> but we're, we're going to be talking about uh, the Eucharist and, and communion and then the body and blood and all this, all those, um, everything pertinent to that as well, maybe not everything. We're not going to sit here and talk about every book that's ever been written, um, but how our different traditions talk about it. Um, I, I'm actually kind of interested because like me coming from a, a bit more of a low church tradition, moving into something a little bit more high church, um, my views on it have um, migrated slightly more. Um, so I, I'm really interested to hear um, how this is going to go. Uh, we didn't set an order for how we want to talk about it or where in the topic we want to start. Do you guys have any suggestions? Father Nick. I say Father Nick, tag, you're it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, so, so the reason why I'm getting tagged to start is because I, I've been I've been lobbying for this topic for a while now. This is this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, and so I've, I've, I've been wanting to talk about it. And, and just to kind of start with something very briefly biographical. Uh, <laughs> all right, I, I'm going to ask Father Adam to mute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. My rooster is opinionated. By the chicken or the rooster. Uh, He's going to deny Father Adam three times. <laughs> he's crowed for the second time. I think he's denying me three times. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, something very briefly biographical, which is when, when I first felt ca the call to the priesthood uh, at the age of 15, and I wasn't a churchgoer, and I started going to church, uh, which, which I mentioned in our very first podcast episode, um, it, it was really uh, the Eucharist that, um, uh, I, I don't know, spoke to me, drew me in, uh, you know, I didn't have the background to understand. I didn't know anything about the, the theology or even the, the church's basic teachings on it. I just knew that that's uh, where I was drawn and that after receiving communion, uh, I, would, I would often be moved to tears and, uh, and then from there move uh, beyond uh, my prayers with words to something more like a contemplative uh, prayer that, um, that that was really uh, ineffable, as Pastor Lou would suggest that I might say. Um, so so it's it's been an important part. And then I found out 
that this is, at the time I was Roman Catholic, but this is true for the Episcopal Church or the Anglican tradition also, that Eucharist is the central act of, uh, of common worship that we do. It's, it's at the, the heart of uh, our Christian uh, life of, of prayer and, and worship and discipleship. And so, uh, so it's been very important to me from the very beginning of, of my spiritual journey. Um, so I, I start off with that uh, because I'm not going to get any more touchy-feely than that. Uh, that that's the extent of my touchy-feeliness. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> well, one one thing that we've one thing that we've talked about uh, before. I don't I don't know in the in the podcast itself, but certainly among us is that um, you know I I'm drawn to uh, the. Uh, scholarly and academic side of the ministry, Lou Pastor. I'm fuzzy and mystical. Father Adams drawn to the fuzzy, the mystical, and the humorous, uh, but also the liturgical. Um, and Pastor Lou's drawn to the the um, the pastoral and and uh, the devotional. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't overlap in a lot of ways. You know, we all have to engage in these different parts of ministry, but uh, but it does kind of point out where our emphasis is. And and a, a fun thing to do from here on out is try and figure out who chose the topic of the episode <laughs> based on what it's about. Uh, now that you know where our leanings are, if you didn't know, well, we, we have had some folks suggest things to us, like the last two episodes were suggested. So if anyone out there has other suggestions, let us know. I know we've been we've getting been, a few. We've been holding Father Nick back from this episode subject for about six weeks now, That's right. or maybe longer. So uh, we just had to let him do his thing. Otherwise, he was just going to quit or something on us. <laughs> That's right. All right. So uh, really quickly, I'm just going to kind of throw out there a bunch of stuff and then let Lou and, and, and uh, Pastor Lou and Father Adam kind of take it where they will. Uh, I, I did say really quickly, which means so for That's the why I'm laughing. five minutes. That's why I'm laughing. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so I said that it, it, Eucharist is the, uh, the heart. It's at the core, the center of our corporate uh, worship, our common worship as Christians, our, our uh, Christian life and uh, pilgrimage in this earth, on this earth. And, um, and that's definitely the position I, I would say of of the um, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican tradition, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox. I I assume that something similar is affirmed by the Lutherans, though. though I I don't know for sure, uh, and I'm sure Pastor Lou will speak to that. Um, and uh, and one of the things that we also all have in common is our uh, interpretation of. Uh, to some extent, what's happening in the Eucharist, why it's so important. Uh, so I'm going to introduce a couple really quick distinctions that will help kind of make that clear. The first is that um, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, we all call this a sacrament. Uh, it, there's, a, there's a fancy Greek word, uh, which is basically just mystery, uh, that the Eastern uh, churches tend to use, but uh, sacraments, the, the typical Western way of referring to it in our churches. Uh, and that's different than other branches or denominations of Christianity that might be more um, 
we, we might consider more Protestant or we might say are more low church, in which case the Lord's Supper or Eucharist uh, is called an ordinance, not a sacrament. And the distinction is important because uh, ordinance suggests this is something that you're ordered to do. This is something you do it because Christ told you to do it. And so that's why you do it. It's an ordinance. But, uh, but for us, it's a sacrament. Uh, so that it's not, we, I mean, obviously we do it because Christ told us to do it. But that's not what, what's at the heart of it. What's much more important than that is that uh, this is a, a means of grace for us. So that, so that grace truly comes through the consecrated bread and wine of the Eucharist. And in fact, the whole Eucharistic worship, not just receiving the bread and wine, but the whole Eucharistic worship is a means by which we receive the grace that Christ uh, won for us through his uh, life, death, and resurrection. And so what that, what that also means is that we proclaim that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. Uh, and there's different ways of talking about real presence, and sometimes people will talk about spiritual real presence, and sometimes people will talk about corporeal real presence, corporeal being the word for body, the kind of Latin word for body, uh, and, um, and our, our traditions all affirm the corporeal real presence, that, that Christ in, in, in some way, and our traditions don't always specify how, what the metaphysical mechanics are, but in some way, Christ is, is really present, which his, his body, blood, soul, and divinity truly come through uh, the, um, the Eucharist. Uh, this is something that Luther actually um, got into a big debate with other reformers over because folks like Ulrich and Pastor Lou might mention some of this, but I'm going to go ahead and beat him to it. Uh, the, head, the founder of the reformed tradition, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, argued that Christ is just spiritually present, which means that uh, what he meant, meant by that is that uh, you subjectively experience Christ in your own mind and heart when you receive the Eucharist because you remember who Christ is and what he's done for you, that he's died and, and been raised for you. But, but Luther insisted, no, no, no. Christ is corporeal, corporeally present. That is, uh, this is truly a means of grace. Christ is objectively, it might be the, a modern way that we would say, objectively present in the Eucharist, not just spiritually or not just in your subjective experience of the Eucharist. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that's one kind of big distinction. And I think that's something that all of our uh, churches share in common is that uh, insistence on the corporeal presence. And that way, I, I think the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition has, in, uh, in coming out of the uh, Reformation, has tended towards a more Lutheran view of the Eucharist. The final thing I'll say before I turn it over, and I'm sure we can get into 
more of this uh, as, as we go along, uh, because this might be, <laughs> this might be the, the, the most uh, controversial thing that I say, is, is that um, I, a, another distinction to make, and I've already kind of hinted at, is that there's proclaiming or affirming uh, Christ's real presence, his real corporeal presence, and then there's the, the secondary question of how is Christ really present, corporeally present? What are the metaphysical mechanics of that? Uh, and here, the Roman Catholic Church has affirmed uh, a position known as transubstantiation. Luther, perhaps wisely, never really endorsed a particular uh, metaphysical mechanics, and the Eastern Church has never really endorsed a particular metaphysical mechanics for how Christ is really corporeally present. But the Roman Catholic Church has, called transubstantiation, uh, there's different views of transubstantiation, uh, different theologians who have talked about it. Uh, I think the current Roman Catholic understanding is, is dependent on a guy named John Duns Scotus, uh, but I'm, I'm persuaded by St. Thomas Aquinas's view of, but Pastor Lou is so shocked. <laughs> I'm, I'm persuaded by St. Thomas Aquinas's account of transubstantiation as the mechanics, the metaphysical mechanics for how Christ is corporeally present. But I, would I think not, Tommy Kwaikwai is going to be the fifth beetle. <laughs> that's right. I, I, would, I would never say that that's something, this is a difference, though, uh, where I think the Roman Catholic Church has, has taken maybe a slightly wrong turn, is that they require their uh, members to believe that that's the metaphysical mechanics of how Christ is present. I, I'm with Luther in saying, if that's, if that's a stumbling block for you, let it go. Don't worry about the metaphysical mechanics. Just believe Christ's word that he is truly present for you in the Eucharist. That's what's important. If you're someone like me, however, and you just can't help but ask those questions, and, and you think, you know, I need to probe this and, and really work through this, then I, I would suggest Thomas Aquinas's view of transubstantiation is the best way of understanding how Christ is present corporeally in the Eucharist. I'm done. Well, and on that note, now that uh, Nick has elaborated on both the Lutheran and the Orthodox view, do you guys even have anything to add? So, <laughs> this is our shortest podcast ever. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's almost. You me, will hear in. Oh, sorry, brother. I was going to say he almost gave me two heart attacks: one that he was short, and two that he kept talking about Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> You will sometimes hear, once in a blue moon, in Orthodox writings and, uh, and such on sacramental theology, you will hear the terms transubstantiation used, not liberally, and not in the same understanding as the Roman Catholics would, would, would have it. We, it's a borrowed term referring to the, the changing uh, of the bread and wine into the uh, body and blood of Christ. And that's when, when the Orthodox use that term, and it's very seldom and probably ill-advised. Um, what is meant is simply the, the change, the change. The, the unpacking the, the breadth and depth of what the Catholics attempted to do 
with the term transubstantiation, a noble yet typically failed attempt to clarify is not how the Orthodox would ever use it. And again, it's, it's a troublesome enough term that it oughtn't to be used anyway. Um, because in a nutshell, the Orthodox response to the term transubstantiation is just like, is that all you got? Like something so profound is happening in that moment. And to bracket it with the term transubstantiation, to parenthetically speak of what's going on, simply to put it into digestible human terms is a fool's errand. And, and unintentionally, I know the Catholics didn't mean for this to happen for sure, but uh, in their ever Aquinian tendency to be legalistic about specificity in, 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 in very Latin fashion, they have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Um, to have that term because it's such a limiting transubstantiation there's so much more going on how does it how is it achieved if we could really elucidate what exactly the mechanics the metaphysical mechanics of how that's being accomplished we would ourselves be gods we would ourselves be equal to christ and equal to to the saints who have been enlightened and who have been baptized into Christ and have put him on. And even they who await the physical resurrection couldn't tell you how that is achieved. That is what's going on in the epiclesis or the calling down of the Holy Spirit onto the, the gifts set forth upon the altar is in a spiritual fashion change these things from the the accidents into the the word that we use father nick will be good at this one. accidents and what so so aquinas would say that there is a substance and the accidents right the substance yeah, yeah, yeah. is what gets changed hence transubstantiation but the accidents of bread and wine how they look how they right. taste how they smell uh that's what stays the same and I say right. that the whole explanation is an accident, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Some would say the whole three priests is an accident. Or perhaps a train wreck, but it's a beautiful one. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not substantial. <laughs> I, yeah. was I could even argue that my whole existence is an accident, but we won't get into that right now. <laughs> That's metaphysics, too. <laughs> Are you done, Father Adam? I'm never done, but for the time being, I'm taking a breath. And a that, was, that was very corona. short. Too. It was very short. So essentially, just, just to clarify the, the position, it's, it's not that you would say the, the doctrine of transubstantiation, in, as Roman Catholics understand it, goes too far. It's almost that it doesn't go far enough. Oh, it doesn't even approach far enough. It, 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 it goes so limited to such a limited extent that it completely throws to the wayside the whole act of, of a lifetime of encountering Christ in a mystical fashion mm -hmm. in the body and blood that we take by his word that this is my body and this is my blood transubstantiation while having been a catholic i do understand the spirit in which it's offered i'll give i'll throw a mm -hmm. bone to the catholics 
I understand that it was the zeal to, to be very specific that, yes, we do believe that this is the body and the blood, so much so that we're going to make a futile attempt to, to explain exactly how that's the case, to the point that if you take it to some of its logical, uh, let, let the logic play out, it, it gets ridiculous. It, it's, it's so specific as to completely jump off the, the, uh, the path of, of what's taking place there, that this is my body and blood. Um, I mean, we, we partake of the, of the Eucharist as the body of Christ. We are the church, the New Jerusalem. We are the body. And as the body, we partake of the body. It's, it's, a, it's a blending in of, of, of the sacramentality of, of the human person and encountering Christ in our brother and each other, which is the only context for our salvation, is, is human connection. That is the, the imminence of Christ, is each other. And it is realized perfectly and most in a most focused ma- fashion in the partaking of the body and blood of Christ. On some levels, the, the, the body and blood of Christ, the real presence of Christ is you and I, in a very real fashion that's the case the context for our encountering christ truly physically is each other and it is realized in this mystical sacrifice of 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 the bread and wine uh what is the the the, he is the offerer and what is offered and as we participate in that obediently and lovingly and most undeservedly we enter into in a more deeper fashion because we've entered into each other in, in, in humility uh, and in, in self-emptying love and in uh, forgiveness. Uh, we, we have, uh, in that context, w- without enmity, then we can approach this focal point of that reality that Christ is dwelling in our presence, in our midst, as the church, as the body. Not the building, but the body. And that, that experience of partaking of, of the, the real presence of Christ beyond the context of, 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 of the human person is impossible to really elucidate on. Many have tried. Not many have succeeded in saying what's going on there in the real presence. The real presence, in fact, is not ours to ponder. The, the hows or the, the metaphysical mechanics really at, at some point becomes a distraction from, from what's true. We know that it's his body and blood because he told us it was. And we know that we are his body and blood because we have experienced it and we are called to experience it in such a level that we become saints and we put on Christ and that we could be by grace what Christ is by nature. And that only comes through prayer, fasting, almsgiving, forgiveness, um, laying aside of all earthly cares to, to, to limit that whole thing and say transubstantiation. The Orthodox, in a nutshell, the response is that all you got? You got, I know you can do better. <laughs> and then I know you can't ultimately do much better because none of us can. We don't have the ability to be more specific about what's going on. We have to, I think, keep it in the context of, of uh, surrendering our ego and our will in humility to each other through grace, which is given by the Holy Spirit, which is promised through baptism and, and, and sealed uh, in chrismation. I mean, th- these are the contexts, these are the mechanics of, of the real presence of Christ. The Eucharist is beyond description. 
It is beyond our ability to really articulate. So I shall probably stop articulating. <laughs> Pastor Lou, am I, am I, is it, um, is it a stretch for me to say that you're about to agree with Father Adam? No, I'm, I'm going to agree with Father Adam. <laughs> um, for, the, for the most part, for sure. Um, I think maybe that's one of the areas that the fact that Lutherans are not so specific in their understanding allows for uh, unity with different traditions on a greater level, perhaps, um, at least if you're not a confessional Lutheran um, it, it allows for full communion um, with right now six denominations of Reformed tradition and um, Arabian and also um, Methodist and Episcopal. So, so the the it's the fact that you haven't so strictly defined an understanding allows you to to kind of agree to disagree a little bit to understand. There's the mystery there. There's an element in uh, for those that want to read about it at home. I would recommend the Augsburg Confession, which is uh, was presented at the start of the Reformation to the Holy Roman Emperor um, to try to defend the faith that was starting to be defined as uh, evangelical. Uh, they were the first evangelicals, what would be later be called Protestant, Lutheran. And um, if you read that along with the large catechism of Martin Luther, the small catechisms is helpful, but it's much more detailed than the large catechism originally written for pastors. But of course, our education is much higher, so pretty much anyone could access that very easily. Both are on the on the internet, so you don't have to buy them. The uh, he will use the term of ordinance, as Father um, Nick alluded to, but there is that focus on being the means of grace, and and so there is an understanding that the sacrament is a command of, of Christ. Um, indeed, the, the word or the promise that Jesus um, attributes to this participation in the sacrament, the command of God to participate is what, what makes it a sacrament. It's all rolled it up into it and the Holy Spirit working through that. means grace. And that, that's your rooster agreeing with me. Um, and, and so we understand that there's, and, and Luther's discernment about what is a sacrament, again, from previous episodes, we talked about how the church went, you know, from two, three, five, seven sacraments and back and forth, at least in the West, settled in the 1200s. But he, he revisited it, you know, 300 years later and basically looked at the, the very physical component, the presence of the water for baptism the bread and wine with, with the, the Lord's Supper, joined with the word, joined with that promise of Jesus, joined with that commandment of God, making them a real special um, interaction with grace. It doesn't mean that grace never reaches out to us in any other way, but there's an element of it being a saving grace, not, not the way of salvation, but it is, there, there's a mechanism in there where we're sanctified through that interaction, brought together with the communion of the entire church and with God, it's God uh, as, as, as a whole. So, you know, there's, there's something very special that those two were selected out of the regular seven different practices of the church that were traditionally, for the last 300 years before the Reformation, considered sacrament. Luther does argue that it's very much the true body and blood of Jesus uh, in and under the bread and wine is the terminology used. So a lot of folks, because they're still stuck in the Aristilian kind of definition, 
will apply consubstantiation, that term, onto Lutheranism, but that is rejected by the vast majority of Lutherans. They will not use that term, just like an Orthodox would prefer not to use, um, um, you know, transubstantiation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, as Father Adam was arguing, it's, it's just a word that doesn't, and a model of thinking that just doesn't fully encapsulate or incorporate everything that's in scripture and the mystery that's there. And, and, and can so, you define a little bit just, just before we get too far, what consubstantiation would be? Well, it's using that whole accident and substance kind of argument, which Luther shied away from. He didn't like, uh, he didn't like and care for Aristotle. Aristotle, when they were, when this, when this came into the uh, language of the Western Church, Aristotle had just been rediscovered, and and affected a lot of learning across the board, including theological study. And so, folks try to use it as a, a tool to help capture and understand this mystery. And Luther kind of took a step back and says, "Wait a minute, that's not really fully, you know, able to engage it. It's not Scripture. Why mess with this?" mystery why try to um, define it and put god in a box so um consubstantiation and transubstantiation are are together you know in the same kind of language but we would reject it uh i'm not going to say all lutherans because there's a lot of smaller little lutheran sects and some of them are actually i've read of even some very small ones are trying to you know work their way into the catholic church again some uh, don't resist and reject that term, but the vast majority of Lutherans, they're going to just say, don't try to explain the mystery, just accept it on faith that the bread and wine is comprehended in and connected with the the word of God. That's the way the, the confessions talk about it. And and because it's a it is a command to take the body and blood of Jesus somewhere in the Middle Ages that had fallen out of vogue for the laity to take both. That was a huge um, reform argument, even before Luther. Some people died over that. Uh, uh, Jan Hus or John Hus, or however you want to pronounce his name, there's different variations. But the the founder or the the spiritual head of the Moravian tradition, I mean, that was one of the things he ended up being burnt at the stake over, uh, wanting to have laity participate fully in the supper. But Luther probably aware of those arguments and others that came before him, agreed that Jesus says, accept both the body and blood of Jesus as part of this meal, and so that the lady should. Somewhere in the 1200s, the, the Western church changed. Don't know the real reasons. Was the plague or fear of the lady or something else involved? Don't, I can't find anything on that. Maybe someone out in the, in the podcast land knows. Um, but another thing that was uh, important for the Martin Luther's time was to not um, not require preparation. Not require preparation. Preparation he does not denounce. It's that requirement of of a work to receive this grace. You know, when you you hear the word Eucharist, yes, it means Thanksgiving, but the root word of it is is from Greek meaning grace, and that's the focus. It is it is not your work. You can't prepare for it adequately because you're always a sinner, saying it the best. And so, but but he never denounces that you should never prepare for it. You can, and if that includes fasting or confession or other things, it can be a helpful thing, but it's not a required thing in our understanding. Um, 
And, and that doesn't mean it's never been done, though, because, of course, different pastors, different regions, different denominations within Lutheranism have applied things sometimes differently. I know of a, a family that uh, told me about a story in the 19, oh, probably 1940s, when their pastor used to require anyone that was going to commune to go to confession the night before. That sounds very Catholic-y. Um, but that was a Lutheran pastor that required that. Was that sounds his, very hardcore Orthodox too? Yeah, it, that could have been his his piety coming through, and he may have been you know shepherding his people that way. But that's not what the the confessions are pretty clear on that no one should be mandated to confess, uh, no one should be mandated to fast, no one should be mandated to come to the meal. Although, as a Christian, if we understand this mystery at any level. We should hunger for it, and we should participate as often as possible. And so we include the confession in most Sundays. We can include, of course, the sharing of the peace. So the kiss of peace is a is a means of reconciling before the meal as well. But it's all not, a, a not during coronavirus, way. though. Not during the coronavirus, right? We'll, we'll <laughs> bow or whatever as, as we get back to church for a while. Um, the Mediterranean, of course, you know, look. You know, in the in the Bible, it talks about the kiss of peace. Um, you know, th th that's not done in the majority of Christian churches. It, it's now a handshake just because that's the conf the conformity to culture. If you're in the Mediterranean, though, when I was in France or, or somewhere like that, you know, there was a lot of kissing at the kiss of peace. I mean, it, it's just part of the culture. Um, Interestingly, in the Orthodox Church, the kiss of peace is only done among the concelebrating clergy um, inside of the altar. Uh, there is no uh, physical exchange of a symbolic act of making peace uh, among the laity. Um, I imagine that that probably existed in, in Orthodox antiquity, but uh, it is only done among the clergy, and it's a kiss. On two the Orthodox change? I, I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. Are you also saying that the clergy kiss behind closed doors? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was, I was making actually, sure I heard that the right. The doors are open. The, the all male <laughs> clergy, by the way. The all male clergy. <laughs> I was going to suggest that the Orthodox were being unbil unbiblical, but that's uh, <laughs> impossible. Uh, well, we know that. Yeah, we all know that's impossible, right? So, um, but but you know, maybe maybe when next time you dismiss the catechumens, <laughs> you can. <laughs> Extend peace to everyone. Oh, wait a minute. I don't see that anymore. Um, we heard that in another episode. Yet another change. Um, but if we, if we take it seriously, that's the body and blood of Christ. If we understand it as a healing medicine, that God is active in, the, in, in this sacrament, um, then we should participate in it. Um, and if we don't have that feeling, that hunger for it, even, you know, because we can all go through dry periods spiritually, we can all have doubts, whatever. You know, Luther suggests that we still participate anyway, trusting in the scriptures, trusting in the promises Jesus said, even if we don't feel it. It's, it's a matter of throwing yourself you know, into the hands of God. Um, and then, you know, as far as uh, being worthy to receive communion in the Catholic tradition, of course, there's different sins you can do um, that uh, particularly will, um, you should have communion refused to you. Um certain sins that make you unworthy of participating. But, you know, in a Lutheran understanding, you know, is it better to reconcile before you commune? Is it better to repent before you commune? Yes, of course. 
Um, but there's an element of God's grace active in that meal. And if it's received in faith, then there is a forgiveness of sins as well. Um, and, and what would come out with a modern application of what we're going through now, we talked a little bit about in the last episode that at least traditionally, um, being gathered together, being in assembly, um, is a key in the Augsburg Confession. Um, that is currently being debated because of our digital divide due to the pandemic. Um, there are some pastors in Lutheran Church of the ELC anyway that are um, saying that we should make some changes um, because of that situation. And maybe that's complicated because we're in full communion with groups like the PCUSA, which has no problem with saying, you know, get some bread, get your grape juice, come to the computer and share in the meal with us. That That's a, a theological discussion, but it would not be the traditional Orthodox as is evidenced by not only Father Adam holding his ears, but the two Nicks holding their ears. And, and the, <laughs> There is that discussion, but that's a that's more reformed theology. That's more of a reformed theology and not of the Lutheran tradition. And so I don't. Our bishops have clearly come down on not supporting that. Um, that doesn't mean there's not people questioning those bishops because that kind of goes hand in hand today, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, but also, we've also discussed, and this will wrap it up. When should someone receive? And um, you know, there's, there is an argument, I think Luther kind of leans that direction towards the Orthodox tradition, you know, you're baptized, you should be receiving the, the, um, the age thing became more of an issue reflective of wanting the child to understand what they were receiving. It's not, you know, just some piece of bread. And, and, and so initially there seems to be a trend where it was for, communion when would you'd commune when you reached the age of confirmation which tended to be around eight nine you know you're talking eight ninth grade 12 13 years old that adulthood age um and in the 1920s as we alluded to in another episode that's when saint pius the 10th in the 1920s made a change that children of the age of reason which he defined as second grade could participate in the sacrament that was a big shift for the Catholic Church. Um, that got other denominations talking, including Lutherans. And in the 1950s, 60s, there were discussions across, across Lutheranism, pan-Lutheran gatherings, to discuss when people should receive. And in general, it was decided fifth grade. But again, there were different practices in different places. And so... Um, the congregation that I came to had previously had a tradition of fifth grade, but um, there is no real fast and hard rule about that. This day and age, they do tend to commune younger, as like the Catholics, maybe second, third grade. But if if the family feels in my in when I've been a pastor at different places, it, I'm I'm open to a younger person receiving, based on the the pastoral discussion with the parents and and some discernment about the youth and where they're at. Um, I personally think I, you know, this is gonna shock Father Adam because he thinks I'm so opposed to him um, that that I would agree with the Orthodox, really. I think that's, that's fine with me. So I've agreed with you twice this episode. I hope that doesn't cause you to fall ill or, or end up with an emergency run to the hospital with a heart attack. I think that we just are united in our, our solidarity with liking to pick on Father Nick a lot. 
maybe. But you know, I mean, I don't, I don't really. I, I mean, I joke about it. I, it's, I just don't feel it's a, a, a useful chore. It might be fun for some people with certain interests to, you know, try to define it. But it's kind of a fruit that doesn't bear a lot of fruit for me. I do. So, I mean, this has been good to see how how the three of you kind of kind of stand on this. And of course, I mean, these debates have been going on for centuries. There's no way we're gonna cram this all into an hour or so. Um, but there is actually something I wanted to circle back to um, because this, I mean, for me personally, has always been an area of just kind of confusion. Um, we talk about the sacraments, specifically the Eucharist, being um, a means of us receiving grace. What what exactly is that grace that we're receiving? Uh, Lou, you mentioned that this is not necessarily like salvific grace, um, but like because like one could that you know there's there, there's the moment of, of of salvation that puts you you know inside the Christian fellowship inside the church. What is this continued grace that we would be receiving through like continued sacraments like like the Eucharist? Well, that, it gets it gets cloudy in the Lutheran tradition. We understand there is an element of saving grace in both sacraments, because you know it's it, they're they're intertwined. Baptism and the Lord's Supper intertwined in such a way um, that it opens you up to be part in a deeper way, the family of God, body of Christ. However, whatever language you want to use, so it does get confusing because there's an element of what does it mean to be saved? And I think one of the it was actually. A, a Catholic theologian that explained it to you know that in this way I thought it was helpful it may not be for you guys but um and the listeners but he would explain you know we were saved at the moment that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead right we we're saved in the past we're being saved through the in interaction with the Holy Spirit through the sacraments through life in the church we're being saved and we will be saved when we are judged in the future and so saving is not a one-stop shop <clears throat> it's not just I've come to Christ or I've been baptized and I'm saved and that's it. It's a continual relationship, that ongoing interaction, sanctification. Mm -hmm. does, does that clarify where I'm it coming? It does a little bit. I've heard those, um, what, the distinctions you just made between those three defined as the difference between, um, at least in my more, uh, more Baptist upbringing, the difference between um, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Um, which is like the salvation process, just like on a timeline. That, that's um, right. So that, that's typically known as, uh, to throw out some, some Latin, the ordo salutis, right? The order of salvation. Uh, Bless which, you. Which, right, which, which has three parts. Uh, and this might just be a Western thing. I'm, I'm not sure Father Adam will have to jump in. But That sounded like a menu item on an Italian restaurant. Okay. Uh, the, the three parts are, are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And different theologians have thought about this in different ways. So, for example, John Calvin thinks that the whole ordo salutis, the whole order of salvation, is a process of sanctification that begins with justification and ends in glorification. Uh, the medieval Catholic view that Luther was responding to uh, thinks of the order of salvation as being uh, justification in uh, you, you kind of get it all in baptism, but then uh, but then as soon as you sin after you're baptized, you you have made shipwreck of your of your uh, salvation, 
and and you will you will need the sacraments then uh, as kind of life preservers uh, as you as you kind of otherwise you'll sink into the sea of sin. That was whose view? That's the medieval Catholic view. Medieval I, Catholic. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the modern Catholic view. Uh, the, it still exists though with some. Sure. Uh, Luther's response was, look, uh, you get it all. So he, he agrees with the, with the cat, medieval Catholic. You get it all in baptism. Uh, but in baptism, uh, you, you're both, you're, as we've said many times before, simultaneously sinner. You still have the old man. You still have the, the old sinful flesh with you. Uh, and so for him, sanctification is just a, a continual return to your baptism. And that's what Eucharist does. Every time you go to the Eucharistic table, you are returning to the fullness of your baptism. It's not a life preserver. You're, you're, you're fully restored to being justified and sanctified in Christ when you receive that communion. But you're going to go out and sin again, and you'll come back and, and, and re return to your baptism. Not just Eucharist, though. For him, even confession and absolution, hearing the word of, of absolution as a return to your baptism over and over and over again. Well, and then kind of like a rock in a tumbler. This is my friend Ben's favorite metaphor for this, like a rock in one of those tumblers that keeps getting, it doesn't go anywhere, but keeps going round and round. Eventually it gets worn smooth. So that's, that's where I, I, I always both question and really can't understand in a lot of ways, the um, jettisoning, that might be too strong of a word, but jettisoning of confession in the, in the Western uh, Protestant churches, um, because we're talking about a returning to our baptism, and you know, clearly after the saving grace of, of our baptism, and that, that, that seminal moment of actually finally being born uh, and baptized into Christ, um, and rising in, in glory with him out of the, the three immersions in the water, three days in the tomb, a new creation. How is it that confession as a formal act, not just as a corporate confession prayer done in liturgy just prior to communion, how is it that the act of confession has been laid aside so, so much? Um, the the return to baptism is the act of, of confession, the act of, of confessing one's sins and hearing the words of absolution and experiencing the witness of the church that one has been restored to the church, where when one was participating in sins, one was completely outside of the church and outside of a state of grace. That one had basically not uh, lost grace, but had literally by choice laid aside grace the the grace laid aside one's participation in that like one had stopped conforming to the shape of grace so to speak um the the forgiveness of the, of one's sins on the cross has already been achieved but if one is not in such a state that one can receive the grace then the grace is useless um and so skipping the act of confession and going right to communion outside of repentance and outside of confession and being restored, you know, and one, 
out of many, but one very specific example of this is the um, uh, the story of, of the uh, the ten lepers. You know, they represent sinfulness. No, they themselves may not have sinned uh, in any particular way, but they represent. I mean, we we must always find uh, because the scripture is dynamic and the gospels are we're meant to find ourselves within them. Otherwise, there's no use for them. Um, where are we in this story of the of, of of the lepers? You know, this is an icon of confession. You know, we're told to go and show ourselves to the priest. We're 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 outside of the village. We we have no identity. Even our our, our families can't even be with us. We can't participate in the life that is the center of our community. We've been forced onto the outskirts. We've, you know, in this case, they contracted leprosy. But in in our case, we 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 go after and embrace the leprosy of sin. And we are found then to be living in squalor outside of the village and dying uh, of, of decrepitude and disease and calling out to Christ, Lord, save me. And he says, go and show yourself to the priest. Right. And they are the ones who, of course, would have declared them ritually clean uh, as they would have been the, the authorities in, that guarded the law. But they also would have spoken for the, the public health aspect of it in that particular case. Uh, it, the, in the case of actual leprosy, but how is it that we would be able to be restored to the community and to be able to lay hold of our identity once again, and our family and our participation in the life, if we were not to both call out to Christ, save me, and go and show yourself to the priest? And, 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 and be restored. Your faith has healed you. That is the restoration to our baptism. You can't go right from sinfulness to Eucharist without contrition, without a contrition of heart, without an, uh, at least an attempt at an act of repentance, um, even if repentance might be incomplete because it's a process. We understand that. But understanding that, like, hey, I can't do this on my own. I can't forgive my sins. And I am showing myself to the priest and being restored. Um, you know, I, I just can't understand my, my, my mind can't fathom the idea. I, I mean, uh, one of my Episcopal priest friends, he's like, okay, how we do confession is all can, some should, none must. And I'm like, uh, the Orthodox would say all must, all should, and all can, <laughs> because in order to be saved, we cannot go straight to grace without repentance, without 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 showing ourselves and being cleansed of our of, of our leprosy, your your Episcopal priest friend was talking about individual confession. We have corporate confession as part of our liturgy every sure. Sunday, and and the Lutherans take confession so seriously that they start their liturgy. They won't even get going into the liturgy for the most part without starting with confession. Well, we also still have the, the, the private confession that he's discussing available to anyone. And, and so, you know, you hear the difference and I was kind of giggling at certain parts because, you know, like you're, 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 you're so um, old Testament oriented in some of your understandings where, you know, we would be more grace oriented and, and focus not on the priest, but on the, the fact that there is an element of the priesthood of all believers that the, the power of the keys um, in the passages are stated in the plural, indicating the church. And so, so yes. But who represents the church? 
Yes, and, and the priest can represent the church, but so does baby Nick, and so does Father Nick, and oh, so no. does my wife, and so does others. That's our that's the differentiation in the Orthodox tradition. A lot is still centered on the on the priest, in those in the in a very Jewish-like tradition. And in, in our lens, we are looking more through the power of the Holy Spirit and acts of the, the activity of grace that's reaching out to us. And so someone could confess a sin to another. Some could pray individually to God. Some can participate in the formal rite of confession. Some will participate in the corporate act of confession. All those can help prepare you to receive the sacrament, which also offers forgiveness of sin. So in our understanding of the sacrament, both of baptism and of communion, there's an element of forgiveness of sin wrapped into that. And so that could be part of your repenting process, coming amidst the church to participate. In your case, you're more discussing in terms of, and very similar to Catholic, in, in that there's an element of trying to protect the sacrament, have people come in a way that is is right and proper. And, and I understand it, but we lean more towards the grace-oriented side of the house and the priesthood of all believers. And, and that's one of the, the big differences between Lutherans and the Orthodox. And I don't think, you know, your role in the church is different than mine in many ways because you're you're kind of the head of the lodge. And and I am I'm working um, equal with the council and laity and others, even though I'm a leader in their midst. It's a little, it's a different kind of polity different kind of understanding of what vocation is. And, and so that's, that's where it's going to kind of, you know, cause a rub for Orthodox people. I understand it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. <laughs> I understand your argument anyway. Well, I just want to clarify that it doesn't have specifically to do with the priest per se, only in, in so much and insofar as the priest is essential to the, the, the sacrament of confession. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's and and but the fact is, you spent about I don't know five ten minutes focused on the priest. So I'm going to say that you know, yeah. there's an element of the priest. There is there is a difference, I think, right? Because for for Father Adam and and in the Episcopal Church also, only a priest can pronounce absolution uh, at the end of confession. So and I don't think that's true in the Lutheran Church. So that. Uh, we have different words. If you're saying morning prayer, for example, uh, and you're a lay person, you're saying it with other lay people, and you all do the corporate confession, we have a different set of words that's not an absolution for what the officiant can say after the confession. The, the, the lay officiant can say something like, uh, you know, we believe that we are forgiven of our sins uh, because of the yeah. word of Christ, some something along those lines. I mean, it, it, that's not exactly how it goes, but you know what I'm saying. Whereas only the only an ordained priest, not even or, an ordained deacon, can uh, absolve someone of their sins in the Episcopal Church. But that's that's part of we we have that same kind of structure. But there is, you know, you can read some of the materials for confession, and they'll reiterate how you can forgive another person's sin and all. There's a is kind of a it's kind of talking out of both sides of the mouth, unfortunately, in the Lutheran tradition, and it depends on who you're talking to, who, which side they'll lead to, as alluded to with that other priest from the 40s requiring people to come to confession, formal confession, like Pastor, I mean, Father Adam is discussing, 
Um, and, and so, you know, you have, there is that tension and disagreement and, and different interpretations. And so we echo what you just said um, with, with in our service of the word or morning prayer, if a lay person is, is uh, reading it, um, is leading it. But um, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's not, it's not um, as rigid as the Orthodox application of it, which is pretty much you will or not. Catholic Church, same way. I mean, if now it used to be all the time you're supposed to go to confession. Now it's, you know, a minimum of once a year or else you're not supposed to be able to commune. You know, it's, it's, um, it's still canon law that it, that it tries to uplift confession. You guys all saw that. Um, I think I posted it in the, in the group, the, um, that news article of the, the Pope saying during times of coronavirus, if you can't confess your sins, if you can't come to confession, you can confess directly to God. And then there was that picture of someone with Luther's hat on and going like, please tell me more. Right. <laughs> well, That's it, great. it leads to, and this is not the topic we're talking about, but for other applications of the church, which we still do all that we do, what is term seven sacraments. If someone dies and I don't, come and, and anoint them and provides their absolution of some sort are they doomed lutherans would say no you know and then there's a sake of there's in the western tradition there's emergency baptisms where laity will step up and baptize someone and and so there's an element of that priesthood of all believers in our understanding of things that allows for the the less formal confession uh, less formal mechanism for restoration within the community, even as it reasserts that I'm an ordained representative of the church, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Um, it's it's God. I assure you of God's salvation, not me personally forgiving you of sins. Although I have to forgive Nick a lot and Father Adam all the time, but those, that's another <laughs> conversation. I like that term. I like that term, emergency baptism. Although I understand the the severity and the weight with which it comes and the circumstances it would need to be, I just think the term is really funny. I, the, the that's funny a very old-fashioned way to say it, and and I would wager that a lot of uh, modern pastors would not even use that term. I'm I'm quoting the traditional understanding, you know, because again, what happens to a baby if it's not baptized before death? That's a a big discussion in and of itself, you know. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I know what I believe, but we're not getting into that sure. right here. But interestingly, but when old. in the words of absolution in the Orthodox Church, you rarely would hear the terms "I absolve." Right? No, I don't think we would either. Yes, I mean, same with the words of absolution in the Episcopal Church. That, 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 that was that was me misspeaking. That was yeah. Me. Although I have seen it in, in one of the formulations, there is an "I absolve." In the Western Rite formulation, there's an "I absolve." Um, which is still acceptable uh, to, although within the Orthodox Church, not everybody accepts the Western Rite. <laughs> but uh, uh, there, there, I have seen it, but it is discouraged. Let's put it that way. Yeah, uh, it's thoroughly, thoroughly rejected or discouraged. I think that'd be the same, pretty much. I mean, it's you might find it in certain liturgies or you know rites, but uh, I don't think it's the preferred way, especially these days. In your comment about um, you know what happens to un, unbaptized infants, I'm, I, I remember um, at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the Inferno, Dante's Inferno, they talk about unbaptized infants going to going to limbo. Is was that was that kind of a staple uh, bit of theology of like medieval Catholic? That was that pretty much how it was understood. Oh, we heard that growing up. Oh, you did. Yeah. 
No. Yeah. Now the Catholic Church has done some repenting of its own on that topic. Yeah, I mean, so something that's important: purgatory and limbo are, are have been and continue. Purgatory continues to be an important aspect of 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 Catholic Roman Catholic uh, teaching, and yet it's not official doctrine. Interesting. Yeah. Are you is there? Is there some interplay between um, how? Just I guess I don't want to go full into into baptism because we're talking about Eucharist. Um, the Eucharist you can't have one without the other. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, but the uh, the should not is, have is there, one without the other. There's is there a connection it. between the grace received at the at the um, at the Eucharist and potential avoidance of of purgatory in Roman Catholic theology? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. When when Pastor Luke was talking earlier about um, about the medieval Catholic situation, uh, and and that that the laity were not taking, they were only receiving, as they say, in one kind. That is, they were only allowed to receive the consecrated wafer, right, the consecrated bread, not the wine. It really, it wasn't until the Second Vatican Council that the uh, in the 1960s that the Catholic Church uh, change their position on that, and it's diocese by diocese. Mm, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Wow. The diocese of Arlington, where I grew up, it was only under one species. We received the the, the wafer, and uh, in the diocese of Richmond, when I moved here twenty uh, some years ago, they were distributing under both species. So we would have mi extraordinary ministers of distributing communion, uh, and. One would be having the the bread, and one would be having the wine or body and blood. Um, well, for a long for a long time, the the Arlington Diocese, which is one of the most conservative dioceses in the Catholic Church in the United States, didn't have um, acolytes that were or altar servers that were female either. They do now, and I have seen them offer. Do they? Yes, I have seen them offer wine during the service. Um, these days, but again, I, I think there's a lot of traditionalists there, and what you're really talking about is a tradition that pretty much what came to the fore in the early ages of the church. We don't know exactly when, but the earliest tradition was everyone would receive both, and there was a change in the Catholic tradition, and that became what everyone knew is the way you do it, and that continued up until, like Father Nick said, Vatican II. Right. It, it, with the exception of the Protestant Reformation, because that was a big, as, as Pastor Lewis pointed out, a big deal for all of the Reformers was to move back to receiving in both kinds. The other, the other interesting thing is that uh, most lay people just weren't receiving communion. Right. In, in, in the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, it would, and because I think it was tied to purgatory, communion become became so much more about offering masses to limit someone's uh, who was already dead their time in purgatory, so that the grace would get applied to them. That the lay people who were alive weren't receiving; they would only receive once a year at Easter. There was a lot of different traditions, though, Nick, just so people are clear on it, because, you know, there's different there were there were different practices within the West and then it got more formalized. And so there was even a time that that you would um, not confess. There was a time that they thought they could confess really one time before 
death. And so people would wait until their deathbed to try to confess. And that's part of why confession and absolution was such, became so uh, connected with what people came to know as the last rites. Um, you wouldn't want to give away your salvation uh, because you confessed too early and then screwed up. Um, but I ran into, a, I think I might've mentioned before, a Polish priest. He says, you know, if you confess your sin, then, then, you, then you're absolved and you sin again on your way out of the church. And then you get hit by a bus. Good luck because you're, you're going to hell. That's some, that's some of the Catholic people think that way. Not all by any mindset. I mean, it's a, it's a right. wide variety of opinions. Right, right. And, and I, th I think there's actually more, more diversity and, and better theological thinking about it now than there was in the medieval period. In the medieval right. period, the, the, the lay people, by and large, would not receive regularly. So you had all these priests doing mass. They were the only ones who were receiving, and they were doing it sometimes by themselves. And, uh, and the, the people weren't receiving. And one, this is something that I think is just crazy, because people think that Protestantism has downplayed uh, the Eucharist, and that, that it's the Catholics who make the big deal about the Eucharist, but Protestants make the big deal about the sermon. And, and there's some truth to that as it's, as it's unfolded. But the original reformers, Luther, Zwingli, Cranmer, all of them wanted everybody to receive communion every Sunday. They wanted Eucharist every Sunday, and they wanted the lay people there to receive in both kinds. And it was the Roman Catholic Church at that time that was discouraging the lay people from coming to Mass every Sunday. Interestingly, uh, that was a practice that crept into the Orthodox Church, at least by way of the Slavic tradition. I can't speak for the Greek tradition. I don't know enough about that. Um, but because of the European influence of Peter the Great being a westernizer, you had that practice of only receiving uh, confession and communion once a year, um, right around Pascha, um, which has never been a practice in the Orthodox Church, but that crept in and that sort of uh, errant piety was brought into the U.S. Uh, by way of the Slavs who settled largely in, you know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, the potato belt, we call it, and um, the pierogi belt, rather. Uh, and uh, it was a most vexing uh, kind of thing to encounter, you know, a new priest fresh out of seminary. My first parish that, that I became the rector of was up near uh, Scranton in Wilkesbury in a place called Nanakoke. And, um, lovely group of people, but there was a decent number. It wasn't everybody, but there was several who was like, oh, no, Father, I'm going to have communion just this once, and then and then uh, I'm going to get confession and communion. And, and I was like, listen, you need to do this every Sunday, because he would be there every Sunday. You know, you don't you don't not go to church. My, my Baba would roll over in her grave if I didn't go to church. I said, well, you know what? She's probably rolling over in her grave that you're not receiving communion every Sunday, even though she taught you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. My Baba always said, you know, that 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 we only receive once a year, and that you couldn't tell them no because if Grandma said it, that had more weight than Jesus Christ Himself. That's actually uh, true. Yeah, like Grandma said it. No, you can't be right. You're just the priest. We'll get another one. We've had seventy of them. We'll have another one. Sounds like sounds like coronavirus it. conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't have the teaching in the Orthodox Church of, of um, 
what did you say a purgatory or or, or limbo uh there was the uh practice of burying unbaptized children kind of in a separate part of the cemetery which was another import uh from the west um in orthodox understanding like an unbaptized infant or a stillborn child for instance um hasn't had the opportunity to sin they are still sustained by the grace of god because he's the one who formed them in their mother's womb if they haven't reached the age of reason that they haven't reached the ability to sin so they really weren't uh requiring the same ministrations we will sing memory eternal when a, a young child dies you know a very young or an infant uh, but it's not necessary of course memory eternal they are sustained and received in christ they have not departed from him even though maybe they hadn't yet received baptism um but obviously it's encouraged i mean if the, if a child's in, in in danger of dying we try to baptize in some way even if we can't immerse we'll do the sprinkly sprinkly uh if we have to and we'll accept you know oh well the nurse baptized the baby before the baby died that's perfectly acceptable we, re we record the baptism and uh and such but you know people of who have not had the ability to to reach an ability a point where they can choose leprosy are not in need of healing from it uh they are they are returned to to god and and so there were people who left the church i mean the stories from the from the old parish you know oh I, they wouldn't let me bury my baby who had been nearly full term they they wouldn't bury my baby we had to bury my baby over there not with the family and she never went back to church again i mean this is a woman who would have been a very pious mm. participant in the church and practices like that that were so without value and without grace even though they were done out of i don't know superstition isn't a great word for it but i would say uh ill-informed piety and piety that was informed by importing practices from from the west that were not good ones um, I, I experienced a lot of that so a lot of that's not orthodox what we've been talking about but it, i saw it it was there there were vestiges of it still in these old communities and these old villages in pennsylvania where it where, was where i was i think it's the same in lutheran tradition probably episcopalian uh, in the united states as well is that there was some rubbing off from your neighbors those that did not look at the lord's supper in the same kind of as, as we did grace and might only receive once a year once a quarter something like that there was the reality of a of the uh, lack of pastors to go around to uh, visit congregations and so it became a practice in the united states to to offer the lord's supper less within lutheranism but not in europe europe did not change that way and so luther's argument that you should receive it as much as you can includes every day if you if you want just like the catholic church could be open every day it's more it's more because of practicality not because of uh, it's wrong or anything like that we could we, we could any day we could open up the congregation every day and offer lord's supper after coronavirus after the coronavirus of course well we could do it now too but you just you know you might get in trouble with the authorities but god would forgive us so it would be okay i guess but i not. wish that i had the spiritual wherewithal to be prepared and available and ready to offer the divine liturgy every day it would be exhausting probably to the point of of, of killing me but it's tough I, 
you know, I do, I've been doing it twice a week, uh, during the soft reopening of, uh, of the churches, um, in our diocese. And, uh, in order both because we can, but also to be able to accommodate a smaller group, a smaller cohort, they like to use that word, uh, of people. So, you know, you get your 20 this day, your 20 that day and, uh, what have you, but, um, and, you know, contemplating that because I, I was, uh, sacked or furloughed is the nice word, uh, when Corona hit. And, uh, so I have a lot of free time sort of, I actually have less free time somehow, but theoretically I have more opportunity to offer the divine services. And, you know, if I, if I had the supporting staff as in the choir, and I do have a very willing choir, uh, temporary choir director who, who, as long as she's available would come and, and, and sing. Um, I don't, I don't think I have what it takes to, to offer the divine liturgy every day. I'm not, I'm not in, in, in a spiritually in a place where I could probably do that. I mean, that's not saying that I accept that about myself, but it's, it's, it's an honest assessment uh, that, you know, offering it twice a week is, it's not enough, but it's all I've got. If that makes any sense. I don't know if it does. Well, sure. So I, I know we need to uh, go ahead and wrap up, and, and, and I'm sad about that because I have so much more. That I bet you do. <laughs> this has been a good discussion. Like, there's been some healthy disagreements and discussion, finally. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and, and I haven't had a chance to, uh, to even really talk, other than saying I, I like transubstantiation as Thomas Aquinas <laughs> uh, presents it. I haven't actually had a chance to say anything about it. And I, but I, I'll say uh, just a couple. You wouldn't want to waste our time, Nick. A couple quick things. We need a bumper sticker that says, I love transubstantiation. That's Christmas it. is coming, Father Adam. <laughs> but most of the people that I know, and I, <clears throat> present company excluded, because uh, I actually don't know whether or not uh, these fine gentlemen have, have done this. Uh, but most of the people that I know who, uh, they hear that I think, trans, I personally, like I said, this is not the position of the Episcopal Church. We don't have a position on the metaphysical mechanics. We're like the Lutherans and the Orthodox in that way. But, but, uh, but my personal position is, is for uh, Tommy Quine Quine's uh, view of transubstantiation. And, and usually when I say that, people always say, oh, how, even Roman Catholics, by the way, ah, how can you believe <laughs> that stuff? How can, you know, how can you take Aristotle's metaphysics uh, seriously? Because, of course, that's, as, as Pastor Lou pointed out, that's what, what Thomas Aquinas was drawing on was, was Aristotle uh, quite a bit. And the Eastern Orthodox tend to like Plato more than Aristotle, so they, they go more Platonic. But uh, because Jesus likes Plato better. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, but usually the people who say that have never actually read Aristotle's metaphysics uh, or Thomas Aquinas's uh, view. Again, present company uh, excluded. I, I, I'm not saying these gentlemen haven't, but most of the people who say that haven't. Uh, and, uh, and, and they, the, their only view or their only understanding of transubstantiation is the one that you get uh, from the Roman Catholic Church currently. And I, as I've said before, I think that that view, which, which you find articulated at the Council of Trent, which was the council that was the Roman Catholic, uh, sometimes called the Counter-Reformation Council or the Catholic Reformation Council, 
That was based not on Thomas Aquinas's theology. It was based on John Duns Scotus's theology. And, uh, and it's, it's really important to, because they're saying very different things here. Uh, and it's important to, to know what those differences are. Most people, including Roman Catholics, don't know those differences. And, uh, and so I, I, would, I would throw that out. I'm not going to get into transubstantiation. I will answer one quick question, which is, you had Wait, asked, who asked a question. You had asked <laughs> about consubstantiation. <laughs> oh, okay. And, 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 and consubstantiation, as Pastor Lou said, it tries to use the language of Aristotelian metaphysics. In uh, the con part, transubstantiation means that the substance, the very essence of the bread and wine is changed into the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ. Consubstantiation says that it continues to have the essence or the substance of the bread and wine alongside the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Again, that's not Luther's position. Luther never said that. But Luther did say, well, maybe Eucharist is kind of like the Chalcedonian formula that says Jesus is fully God and fully man. Maybe Eucharist is fully bread and fully Jesus. Uh, that's something that Luther did say. But he was, but he 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 then said, but it doesn't matter. Just trust the word of Christ that he is present in the Eucharist. Whether Luther was so almost orthodox. <laughs> as, as he was getting into his discussion of all the Aristotelian theology or whatever you want to call it, philosophy. Um, and and all of a sudden I've been I've been fine the entire podcast discussion. All of a sudden, this this flea started flying around the screen here. It was almost like it's attracted to the dung heap of Aristotle. Oh my god! <laughs> no, that's uh, just a testament that Father I, Lou I'm has fleas. A, I'm going to call it a miracle, Father Adam. I'm going to call Wait, it. A you ha you have fleas? Father Lou must have fleas. <laughs> no, I think it was attracted to that explanation. So actually, um, Thomas Aquinas's. Uh, description of transubstantiation stresses all the same points that Lou and especially Father Adam have said, which is to say that the metaphysical mechanics break down at the moment of transubstantiation, and all we can do is say that it's something like when God creates creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. And so I, I won't say any more. And so he says a lot only to say what I said doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say more, but I but I do want to. If anybody's interested in doing some heavy duty theological reading on this topic, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> Us. What one is Thomas Aquinas himself? Actually, read what Aquinas says. <laughs> uh, if you can afford it. Right. I was forced <laughs> to read Aquinas. I was forced to read Aristotle in my free online. I appreciate the offer. <laughs> the, the other is, uh, uh, read what Luther had to say. I think Luther on the Eucharist is about the best Luther gets. I mean, that and justification are where Luther shines. Uh, so read Luther uh, and a Lutheran theologian named Hermann Zasse, who wrote, uh, wrote a book at I think it's called This Is My Body, is the English translation, uh, is one of the best modern works on the Eucharist that I've ever read. 
Uh, and finally, uh, there's a, an Anglican theologian named Catherine Pickstock. Uh, she has two books. Father Adam, she's, she's not clergy. She's a lay theologian. <laughs> but she could be clergy. She could even be a bishop. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Her, she has two, two works that I would point out. One is uh, called After Writing on the Philosophical Con or on the Liturgical Consummation of Philosophy. Uh, and the second is uh, an article that she wrote or an essay called Thomas Aquinas and the Quest for the Eucharist. And these, these make clear why, especially in this time when we have uh, the dominant philosophies of our day are anti-essentialist, which means that nothing has an essence, nothing has a substance, uh, why, why in the face of these kinds of philosophies, uh, Thomas Aquinas's view of uh, transubstantiation actually saves us from these nihilistic philosophies that now govern much of the way most people learn how to think whether they know it or not, which is a very anti-theological way of thinking. Well, I Nick, think if we gotta, I think we ought to end this because we're we're starting to defend Thomas Aquinas and not talk about the Lord's Supper. If we, I, if if think, you want to buy me the Summa then that's on you <laughs> and I'll read it. I can't afford it right now. Um, yeah. All right. So guys, this has been, this has been really good. Um, this was lively. This was energetic. You could even say it was ecumenical almost. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a, I had a point. I was, I was going to add something in there. I can't remember anymore. Um I know, I think it's, um, we're all looking forward to the time, um, hopefully in the near future when we can gather together and, and actually partake in the, in the body and blood. Um, cause I know we've, we've been missing that. Yes. Cheers to, cheers to everybody. If you, I can't get a, as close to a clink as I can get. Skull. L'chaim. <laughs> Well, maybe Gross. maybe since uh, Father Adam is in a in a barn like our infant Jesus, <laughs> maybe he should say the closing prayer, and we'll call this one a, a wrap. Yes, please. We thank thee, O Christ our God, for thou hast satisfied us with thy earthly blessings. Deprive us not of thy kingdom, but as thou hast come to thy disciples, O Savior, and just grant them peace. So come to us and save us. Glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. Amen. Amen. Isn't that the same prayer you gave at the end of the live event? Probably. <laughs> I don't have a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the whole thing if you made it this far. Uh, like I said at the beginning, we are going to keep doing our best to get you a new episode every two weeks for the duration of this quarantine period. To keep your minds fresh and to keep you edified. And honestly, as an excuse for us to get together. We... Uh, we miss seeing each other's faces, and uh, honestly, we miss seeing your faces there at the uh, at the live events, those of you who are able to make it. So rest assured, we have not forgotten about those. As soon as we are able to, and as soon as it looks like everybody's able to stay healthy and get together for an event, I'm sure we're going to do what we can to get one planned and get one together so we can all come together, share a brew, and take more jabs at each other like we've been doing since before I even joined this event. So... With all that being said, we will see you in two weeks' time. Till then, stay healthy.